Forge family, as Paul moves to address the general needs of the churches that would read his circular epistle addressed initially to the Ephesians, the problems of the churches of Asia Minor rise to the surface. Paul begins with warm exhortation that the believers become imitators of God, loved by him, and that they are to walk in the same love, just like Christ had loved them. Jesus had given himself up for them as a sacrifice to God. His urge is not to be an imitator of God, but to become one. That involves starts and restarts. It is not a one-off event, but a process. Then Paul turns to the problems, immorality, impurity, and greed. These were inculcated, woven into the Gentile culture, and when they were brought into the churches by new converts, Paul steps up and says, may they not be named among you. And that included the silly talk, coarse jesting that followed in the wake of such immoral behaviors. True to his form, Paul points to the antidote, the giving of thanks, urging all those believers in the churches of Asia Minor to practice gratitude to God in lieu of public or private immorality and chatter. Paul then points out that those who practice sin have no entry to the kingdom of God. And other New Testament writers affirm it. But then Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 points out that some of the Gentile converts had been great sinners, idolaters, sexual addicts, etc., but had turned away from darkness to light, repented, and now sat as redeemed ones in the churches. Let's pray. Pure and holy God, we bow before you, looking again to be washed clean, to have our eyes and ears open to the truth of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the word by Holy Spirit. We recognize our sin alienates us from fellowship with you, just like that of the idolaters. Paul was writing to, but we repent, Lord. We turn back to you and your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge. All right, Forge. This, this former passage in chapter 5 of Ephesians is labeled walk in love by some translation committees, and that has some merit. The paragraphs we're going to study today are labeled walk in light and walk in wisdom. Okay, here we go. Turn with me to chapter 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You can... You can see in verse 8, it's a continuation of the sentence begun in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. <clears throat> the word partakers is drawn from the form of koinonia, meaning fellowship, partnership, holding things in common. Paul cuts that off. That's not to be in the churches of Asia Minor. Then in verse 8, he states that those sitting in the fellowships had formerly been darkness, meaning that those converts had practiced a spectrum of all manner of wicked and corrupting things all the way across the spectrum to a simple idolatry in a back room in a house. It's still darkness. Now that Jesus has come into their lives, 
they were deemed light in the Lord. Now here, Paul is drawing on his roots. The end of the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple courts in Jerusalem was a spectacular remembrance of the pillar of fire that led Israel out of Egypt, lit the night over the camp in, in the wilderness, and hovered over the tabernacle. There were huge candelabra, taller than the walls of the temple courts. They were filled with 65 liters of oil each and set ablaze for that special night. The result of the illumination of the temple and much of the surrounding of Jerusalem was that the, then the priests began to take up flaming torches. They danced and they sung songs of praise to the accompaniment of Levites, harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and other rhythm um, instruments. The priests whirled and danced until the torches burnt down and the lamps guttered out. To the Jews, that ceremony of remembrance of light was all they had. Paul, on the other hand, reflected on John 8, 12, when Jesus addressed the Pharisees immediately after he dealt with the woman caught in adultery. He turns and he said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Paul had discovered Jesus to have been Indeed, the pillar of fire that stood between the Egyptians and the Israelites, that led Israel in the wilderness, that illuminated the, the, the tabernacle, and that was the glowing cloud that filled the temple of Solomon, so full of his presence that the priests fell out, if you will, in amazement. Paul had discovered from the scriptures that Jesus was the very essence of light to the world. The apostle says, we have become that kind of light in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 is a parenthesis, but Paul continues, and he says, the fruit of light can, consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. All that is good, right, and true. That's the fruit of an impeccable, sterling character of one who walks with the Lord and his spirit. Now, verse 10 picks up the reality of being light in the Lord with trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, some of that's, you know, such are some of us. We keep following him and his light and press in to discover and become what makes him smile. Such is the outcome of Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. The word for trying is from dokimazo meaning to test something so as to approve it. Not, not, to, not to throw it out, but to approve it, okay? It is a picture of ore that is being smelted down to molten stage to see if it contains gold. Or putting a clay jar in the sun to see if it's whole. Not, with, not one that has all its cracks dummied up and filled with, with wax. John the Apostle said, test all things, hold fast that which is good. Verses 11 to 14 has the negative instructions to those in the light. Here, Paul has the contrast of the deeds of the flesh. Quote, and do not participate. That same koinonia word there. Don't partner, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. 
Paul's not saying that believers should rush to the streets and point out, oh, that's idolatry over there and immorality over here. Paul is speaking to the believers gathered in the churches, and the word expose is also translated reproof. <clears throat> this was not to be done harshly, but directly to those who had been taught regarding darkness. First, they were addressed privately in the hope that the brother or sister who was practicing darkness again would rep repent and turn back to Jesus. If they refused that reproof persistently over time, then exposure would be made to the whole church. Conviction takes place when light is turned on and, uh, and we as the church need to risk being labeled bigoted, puritanical, judgmental, narrow, or negative. We stand on the word of God. Further, that same word for partnership, with that sharing in common is used by Paul to say, do not participate with darkness, to do the deeds of darkness. Verse 12 continues Paul's thought, for it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. Now Paul goes right after the gossip that corrupts and leads to judging one another. Further, the word secret here speaks of working magic, working occult rites. Many of the Gentile converts would have been practitioners or had been exposed to such occult darkness. Paul repeats the same phrase, these things are not to be named among you. <clears throat> Paul would again say, give thanks to the Lord for what he is doing. Verse 13 has Paul looking backward at the things that were exposed or reproved. For all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Yes, some church discipline is painful, messy, but when the light is turned on, darkness, dark things, and behaviors, you know, all, is, all is visible. All becomes changed by the light of Holy Spirit. He's saying that when the light is brought to bear, darkness flees, and only what's light remains. Verse 14 has Paul using and modifying four phrases out of Isaiah. And the early church may have used these phrases as part of a hymn sung in gratefulness may also be taken as a shout designed to awaken a sleeping church. He said, for this reason, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, the way to translate that is legitimate, as, as, um, it just says, for this reason, get up, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verses 15 and 16 begin the section labeled, Walk in wisdom. Each believer is to constantly, all the time, be on guard. Be careful, moving forward boldly, but alertly. Conducting your life in wisdom, not in folly. And Paul said, quote, Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you conduct yourself, okay? Not as unwise men, but wise. Conducting yourself uh, in such a way as to make the most of your time because the days are evil. 
Now, the word for time is not chronos, which is clock time. Rather, it is kairos, meaning strategic opportune sessions, seasons. The verses call for thoughtful, intentional, focused, soul-searching. It is not introspection. That, that's inherently negative. It is calling us to look inward for the approval and the correction, followed by approval of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit which will give you the gift of discernment for the season and situation you're in. He will open scripture to you for wise choices. He will set the pace. He will call the cadence as you move carefully through evil days. <clears throat> Verse 17 is a bit of conclusion on conducting yourself with wisdom as your guide. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, oh, so big, pic big picture first here. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is the only flat statement that says this is the will of God for your life anywhere in the scripture. Okay, It says this is the will of God for your life, the will of God for you, your sanctification. So sanctification is present tense salvation. No longer are you dealing with, well, I'm, I'm being saved from stuff, some stuff. Okay, which is justification. That's when you are saved. No longer does that have pressure upon you. You are in the midst of seeing the Lordship of Christ brought out in the open in your obedience and worship of him. And sanctification means being put to your intended purpose, being placed and used of God for his high purposes. Now focus with me on the micro. Okay, in the text we have here, wisdom walk is to conduct your life in the light, clinging to the wisdom of Holy Spirit and Scripture. That's the will of God, okay? Conduct your life in the light, clinging to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and Scripture, not departing or straying into folly and darkness. Now, Paul moves into his conclusion for his teaching to the churches scattered abroad. And I remember some final exhortations here. So there's, there's four phrases here where it says, okay, beginning in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine for that dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So for some new converts, at the end of the workday, there was an internal call. It just clicked on, and they, they automatically walked to the tavern. They walked to the pub. And at the end of every day, they would was a buzz and a stagger home to bed and, and wake up in the morning with a blinding headache. Okay, then Paul steps in and says, that lifestyle leads to dissipation, to frittering away wealth, time, health, relationships, not to mention your relationship with the Lord, and instead leads to a debauched, profligate life. And that was certainly true in the Greek culture. Alcohol and immorality were tied tightly together. <clears throat> Paul commands the opposite. Be filled with the Spirit. The Greek word in Greek 
for filled is plerao, meaning to fill up, to cause to abound, to furnish and supply liberally, to flood, to diffuse throughout. In Acts 6, the deacon, Stephen, who had been chosen out for his faithfulness and righteousness to help care for the Greek widows, he is, is held for trial before the Sanhedrin, and there he demonstrates the filling of the Holy Spirit, what it's like and how it is poured out of his life. Now here, Paul uses a present imperative. Be constantly being filled with the Spirit. Then Paul appears to switch subjects, but not, not, not so. Okay, he continues with what being filled with Holy Spirit looks like. Okay, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. We know the book of Psalms, and certainly some of the Jewish uh, converts had that implanted into their hearts and brought it into the churches to be sung and to be recited. But given that there were prophets in the midst of, the, of those churches, gifted by Holy Spirit and practice, those prophets may have crafted new psalms for specific giving of thanks for worship days or for days when there was horrific pressure put upon the churches. They had a psalm ready, just like David did. Okay. Secondly, the believers then and now are to sing hymns. Note that when the church rises, when revival takes place, there's a rapid expansion of the influence of the kingdom of God. And if you look, you will see a singing church. Martin Luther borrowed beer hall music and matched it to match those melodies to great lyrics of the faith. Charles Wesley, John's partner in ministry, wrote 6,000 hymns to be sung out in formal and informal gatherings to the church. Lastly, the believers in Asia Minor and in Forest Church are to bless one another in their gatherings with spiritual songs spontaneous or carefully crafted, perhaps what we would call choruses or contemporary worship. This was not to be for soulish soothing, okay? Of coming from a terrible week to church and singing and going, oh, I feel so much better. Now, the point of this, rather, is to make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Finally, in verse 20, Paul finishes with always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. How many times has Paul presented the giving of thanks to these new converts and older believers throughout the book of Ephesians? Sometimes it was the antidote to vile practice and language. Sometimes it was the response of a joyful heart that had been set free from sin. The results are the same. Holy Spirit comes and enfolds the one who was giving thanks. Now, Kent Hughes, who I've come to really appreciate uh, as a brother and as a source, he carefully presents an ungodly option to that. Quote, some brothers and sister, sisters have taken the unconditional thanks to be a model for spiritual victory. By that I mean they praise God for a spouse's adultery, a daughter's rape, a child's death, a church split, or the fall of a formerly godly leader. 
In so doing, those brothers and sisters praise God for what he had no part of. He is being praised for evil. Instead, we're to give thanks to God in the midst of difficulties for everything that is consistent with his fatherhood, his promises, and his loving son. Now note, I've left off verse 21 here. This last phrase of Paul's conclusion, the last phrase in that long sentence that began in verse 18. I do so because I believe it belongs in the following section dealing with husbands and wives, and it's been set out of place by translation committees since forever. We will begin there next week. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, some of us were darkness, but now are light in Christ Jesus. There is no going back, Lord. We desire the wisdom from Holy Spirit and cling to him through Kairos seasons that are difficult. We would be those filled with the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we are a singing church, but we know that there's more expression to be had in the making melody in our hearts to you. Loose us to craft new songs, and we would be those who are always giving thanks, led by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, I love you. We'll be talking, be, we'll be together soon. God bless you.